Hello, and welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Russell, and this week I chat with my colleague, Madhu Krishnan on the fallout for airlines from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the latest pilot shortage-related cuts in the U.S. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Madhu, how are you doing today? Well, good, Ned. Good. It's uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we've spoken. Uh, we took a little break last week, and and you were gone for part of it. And um, since you were gone, a war broke out. Just a little war. That's right. And for wish uh, I had been gone during more uh, you know, better times. But it's uh, it's it is what it is in the airline world. As we all know, something happens. So, can you tell us a bit what about what's going on? Sure. Now, first of all, you know, Ned, you and I have talked about this offline many times. This is not a podcast to discuss geopolitics or really defense tactics. And and so we're not going to get into military aircraft or movements of drones and all those sorts of things that you see a lot of app geek Twitter lighting up over right now. Uh, we're, we're here to talk about commercial airlines. And you know, what, what's interesting to me, Ned, about this is that this is, and we're also going to you know, we, we acknowledge and move on, um, but we acknowledge that there's a grave humanitarian crisis occurring at this moment. And that is kind of beyond the scope of this podcast, but our hearts go out to all the people who are suffering right now. Absolutely. And I second everything Madhu said. That's right. But uh, to get to the airline part of it, what is different about this war compared with other conflicts in the recent past is that it's occurring on the doorstep of some of the busiest airspace in the world. Um, and... It's also occurring in uh, it's in, it's being um, sort of the invasion has happened by a country that has one of the most um, vibrant and thriving um, domestic air markets, Russia. And that that's act, that was actually a really, um, you know, kind of a bright spot for the airline industry through the pandemic is that Russia's. Um, passenger traffic was incredibly resilient, in some cases actually surpassed 2019 levels. And we'll get to that in a minute, but, um, and why that's important in a minute. But uh, so what, you know, the net, as we, you, as we've spoken about, the situation changes by the hour, but what we know so far is that uh, Europe has closed its airspace to Russian aircraft and Rus- Russian airlines and Russian registered aircraft, which includes the private jets of the oligarchs. The UK has done the same, and Russia has retaliated by closing the airspace to its airspace to thirty-six countries. That's right. You know, most of Europe can't fly. Pretty much all of Europe can't fly to Russia right now, whether to serve Russia or to overfly it. And uh, you know, much of the rest of the world is moving that same way. Uh, though U.S. is still an exception to that. You know, speaking to the domestic market, I want to say actually Russia was the um, only global major global market that the domestic market had fully recovered in 2021. Right. So it was up 24 uh, percent based on IATA numbers. So it'll be interesting to see how the invasion turns that around, because I know that the ruble, uh, the Russian currency, has already taken a huge, uh, huge hit. And though the country can still export oil and gas, they you know, that doesn't uh, that's not going to prop up their uh, the, their currency. So. Um, we'll have to wait and see how well, this plays out for the airlines. Well, there's a whole, a lot of different facets to that, Ned. I mean, Russians may be traveling a lot, but um, they will soon be disconnected from Visa and MasterCard. So that makes paying for tickets a little bit harder. There, um, Russia is already, Russians have already been disconnected from Apple Pay and Google Pay. Um, so that also complicates buying tickets. They'll have to use either cash, which is increasingly decreasing in value, 
are rapidly decreasing in value as the ruble has lost something like 40% of its value against the dollar in two days. Um, and uh, Or homegrown credit cards, which there are homegrown credit cards, but those banks, many of those banks have been sanctioned. So it's just, it's very complicated. So a vibrant uh, domestic air travel system that is now challenged by the ability of Russians to pay for tickets. And, and this is something that uh, I didn't see coming. I don't know if you did, Ned, with the lessors. That no, was... what, 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 what's coming with the lessors, Madhu? Well, uh, part of the European Union sanctions, the European Union sanctions very specifically called out, um, prohibited uh, European aircraft and aircraft parts to be sold to Russia. And Russia's about two thirds of Russia's fleet of about 950 domestic aircraft is leased. So lessors um, have until March 28th to repossess their aircraft that are based in Russia. So one. Now my my question is: it's it's one thing to be able to repossess those planes when they're on the ground in a foreign country that they you know we have you know, they have active diplomatic relations with, but um. Like how how I'm curious if Lassiters can repossess those planes on the ground in Moscow or something. It you know is are Russian authorities going to enforce those you know let them enforce those rules? Well, there there's one interesting thing I didn't think of, and I really welcome our listeners to correct me if I'm wrong. That's mu at skiff.com or ned at er skiff.com, and that's that uh, Russia. Uh, well, I know with Airlease Corp. This is definitely true, but I think it's true across the board that Russia does not allow foreign aircraft to be registered in Russia. So even leased aircraft are are registered in their country of origin. So, okay. so I don't think repossessing is going to be an issue because these are actually foreign assets, um, right? So but they, the lessors have to get them out of the country somehow. So the question yeah, is, how do they do that? <laughs> we, we will see on March 28th. But, uh, but the other thing that we have to think of is those aircraft will have maintenance events um, over the next several months. And if they can't resupply with parts, how are they going to continue flying? Now, I mean, we've seen the case of Iran, there are backdoor ways to get aircraft parts to a country. But, um, but this is a larger airline market than Iran's. So it's just, I, I mean, there's just so many, I have so many questions. And if anyone has any of the answers, these, please write us and let us know. Well, you know, so I had an interesting chat with Martin Gauss, the CEO of Air Baltic uh, on, on Monday, and we're recording this Tuesday. You know, the Air Baltic is, you know, they're not the most uh, impacted by the closure of Russian airspace. So, you know, Finnair is much more impacted. They actually have to overfly Russia. But, you know, he was telling me, you know, they've suspended all their flights to Russia through the end of May. Uh, they suspended, of course, all their flights to Ukraine. You know, uh, hearts and minds go out to everybody there. But he was saying that, you know, he doesn't think this is the right time to be connecting to Russia yeah. uh, when, when he talked about the suspension of service there. And, you know, they've extended those yeah, through the end of May, which is amongst the longest officially announced by airlines. Now, most European airlines are saying to be, you know, until further notice. So it could be for till whenever. But he was, you know, it's it's just it's it's one of those things that you know Russia is even increasingly cut off from the international air transport system. Yeah. If you have, you know, as airlines like Air Baltic, Finnair, I mean, everyone suspended flights, and that's just going to impact more. But then on the flip side, you've got airlines in Europe that have to deal with this. Air Baltic, he said, thankfully, it's it's a small percentage of their ASMs go to Russia, about three percent, another five percent to the Ukraine to Ukraine. 
So it's not a huge source of revenue for the airline, but they are taking, like many, having to reroute flights mm -hmm. um, away from Russian airspace. You said uh, the Riga-Dubai flight is adding about 40 minutes every right. way as it goes around. But, uh, you know, one thing that he wanted to be clear, he was very clear about, is in the Baltics, they are open and ready for business and that travelers should be aware, even though they're on, uh, you know, they're, they're, they share a border with Russia. So, yeah. So you mentioned something about overflights, Ned, and that's really, really a fascinating piece of this. And, you know, Finnair has canceled flights because to Northern Asia because um, it has to, there's really no economic way for Finnair to operate those flights going west to Anchorage. Um, and so flights to Southern Asia, Southeast Asia and South Asia, India and Pakistan, can take a southern route and avoid Russian airspace, but it adds about an hour to the flight time. I think British Airways last week rerouted its Singapore and Delhi flights over um, the southern route and it added about an hour to an hour and a half. So it's not, I mean, with today's aircraft, that's not debilitating. Right. This is not, we're um, not going back to the days of five stops. We're not going back to the days of, of five stops between London and Singapore anymore. You know, it's not going to be right. the, you know, Cairo, Bahrain, Mumbai. But anyway. And it, when you're flying 17 hours, I mean, another hour, really, it's not going to, it's not going to make you not want to take that flight. <laughs> Absolutely. I did read an interesting thing. Uh, one airline CEO, and I forget who it was now, was saying, you know, it's, uh, you know, the airlines are going to have to eat the additional costs on many yeah. of these routes, at least initially, because you can't go back to a traveler who's bought a ticket from London to Singapore for next week and ask, hey, can you give us $100 more because we have to fly an extra hour and a half. Mm -hmm. you know, so airlines are going to be eating those costs for the, at least for initially and until if this conflict goes on and then they can price it in. But initially it's going to be you know, a sunk cost for many carriers. Yeah, absolutely. And and like we were saying, the um, for many airlines, Finnair is unique with its geography. Many airlines can do the old route from the Cold War days when airlines were prohibited for uh, flying um, over Soviet airspace and go over Anchorage. So I haven't seen the figures on how much time that would add, but it's, it's a route that's familiar to a lot of airlines. Absolutely. And Anchorage remains a diversion, uh, a primary diversion spot for many carriers. So it's not like those aren't, it's not built into, you know, at least emergency plans for many airlines. So yeah. they have provisions for serving there. Now, the one then, thing, oh, sorry, go on then. No, no, I did. I said one thing that is kind of a silver lining to all this is with COVID, there are many flights to Asia are still suspended. Yes. China remains closed, Japan, South Korea, much of Asia remains not fully closed, but you know, at least limited. And, you know, I was reading that IAG CEO Louis Gallego last week called uh, the closure of airspace a nuisance yes. at this point, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of changed since he said that. Because they're just not flying that much like they normally would be. So it, it kind of a silver lining that there aren't that many flights going to Asia at this point in time, not right. to, to diminish COVID or the invasion of Ukraine. But that's for the airline industry something that's it. it's not as big of a hit. Right. And and he did say it's a nuisance, but he that, that comment came on Friday, um, the 25th, which is really just a day after hostilities began. So I don't think anyone, it'll be interesting to hear what Lufthansa says when it reports its full year results on the, on, um, on the third, which is day after tomorrow. That'll be a week into the conflict. So European carriers will have a better sense of what the demand will be. Now, you know, Absolutely, I can yeah. always make a story about cargo and that's what I'm <laughs> doing right now. And um, you're right. I mean, Ned, there's not a lot of passenger traffic between Europe and Asia or North America and Asia right now, but there's a lot of tr cargo traffic that goes that way. It goes the Siberian route. 
Right. Now, my question is, is so we're talking about it's hard to go back to a passenger and get them to pay more for a seat on that route. But for that cargo traffic, how are those contracts done? Is it pretty, can cargo company, can air freight companies pass on the cost of longer flights pretty quickly to customers? Or is, okay, so quicker than a passenger. Yeah. uh, And so this, the things I, the people I've been talking to and things I've read have said that uh, this could really change the calculus for air cargo, which is enjoying kind of a a boom right now, as we've discussed many times. Um, All I can think is easy come, easy go, as we (laughs) saw the surge of air cargo and flurry of aircraft orders and new planes. And if if this does sort of route that air cargo resurgence, uh, it'd be interesting. Yeah, I well, might laugh, but we'll no. See. I mean, one one thing yeah, I've I've one thing someone I spoke to said is that it may shippers now have to evaluate whether the extra time and fuel costs are are worth the premium that air cargo air freight provides, right? If they have to, if it takes much longer, or they have to reroute flights over Anchorage, and it just um, takes a while. Um, does maritime shipping become again more attractive? So that no one really knows the answer to that right now. Sorry. And let's not forget that maritime shipping remains the same uh, clogged supply chain, uh, clogged ports and everything that have faced maritime shipping throughout the crisis remains. So it's going to be a calculus of longer air freight times versus still delayed and backed up maritime shipping. So it's yeah. not like one is, is a clear, you know, better choice at this point in time. No, absolutely. And we didn't even discuss overflight fees. I mean, the Russian treasury makes a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars a year and over, over hundreds of millions of dollars a year in overflight fees that have just poof vanished. I mean, it's a great source of foreign exchange. So that's just gone. I mean, whether European I mean, it's hard to to say who will feel the pain more, European carriers that have to add time and may abandon some routes or the Russian state, which will now deprive itself, and Aeroflot, which got a lot of that, the royalties um, of a lot of revenue. Absolutely. Now, one airline that neither of us have been able to reach at this point, so if anyone knows is uh, what's going on, is Wizz Air. Yeah. You know, they have a base. Of course, uh, we, we've reported that they, you know, had four, they've had four aircraft that are sort of stuck on the ground in Lviv, Ukraine, but they also have a base in St. Petersburg, and you know they are one of the larger European carriers going into Russia. And I really mentioned what's happening to them now. They haven't responded to multiple requests, so if anyone knows, we'd love to hear uh, what's what's going on with Wiz and how this is impacting them. For sure, yeah. Please, please let us know if you if you've heard anything uh, to the fate of those four aircraft and the several, I believe, about a hundred personnel that are on the ground in Ukraine. Absolutely. Well, Madhu, we're going to take a break now. We'll be right back. Hey, Madhu, welcome back. Hey, Ned, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, you know, everything going on in Ukraine uh, and and Russia, we have to remember that the airline world continues to chug on elsewhere. And one of the, the places where we're seeing that happen is here in the U.S., where we have reported many times about the the pilot shortage that uh, that is going on and how that is impacting uh, the mainline carriers, uh, American, United Delta, Alaska have all had to make adjustments and cuts. And the latest fallout of that is United pulled 17 uh, regional routes from its schedule this summer, which is not surprising, but is still a hefty number. Uh, yeah, 17. And yep. did, I, I forget, Ned, did they also drop any destinations? 
They did. They exited Alexandria, Louisiana. So it's not uh, sort of a headline town, but it's still notable. Alexandria will retain service on Delta to Atlanta, and Allegiant also serves the city. But that's going to be it at this point. Uh, so United's exiting that. The rest are just our markets where they're they're still served, but only from one or two hubs instead of three or four. And how much did, did United blame any of this on the pilot shortage, or what? What was their official line? Their official line was the we're constantly evaluating our route network, you know, for profitability. But they did say um, and mitigating staffing issues. They didn't directly attribute to pilots, but staffing. Read based on Scott Kirby's comments, our pilots. He's talked several times about them being short on the regional side and and parking 100 regional aircraft because of uh, pilot shortage. Now, I want to be clear, this is a, a shortage that's hitting all U.S. carriers. It's not just the regionals. The only reason the regionals are sort of in the spotlight are because they are the entry point for many pilots into the into the industry. And as the main lines are hiring more, the regional staff get uh, get cut down. You know, one example of that is Horizon Air at Alaska. You know, they have lost some of their E-175 deliveries that were due this year to uh, fellow Alaska partner SkyWest because of their own pilot staffing issues. You know, Alaska called that out in their 10K earlier in, or in February. And then I spoke to Horizon's pilot union and the he head of the union there said that they lost nearly a quarter of their pilots in the in the preceding year. That's big for an airline that only had a, had 820-ish pilots at the end of 2021, and they lost a fifth of that. So it's uh it's it's definitely an issue out there that that regionals are really struggling with. Well, you know, the pilot shortage has been the slowest moving train wreck I've ever seen. Um, start it started, you know, as we discussed um, in the wake of the Colgan Air accident and the changes to the flight and duty time re uh, regulations and training requirements. So it's been going on for a while. But uh, the for, for the record, I want to say that it's been the threat, the looming threat right. of the pilot shortage has been yes. We've both we've both written about it ad nauseum since the mid 2010s, early 2010s for yeah. sure. So it's it's been it's been occurring, but you know one of the persistent uh, reasons given for the this looming and now occurring pilot shortage was that uh, the entry point regional airlines just did not pay very much. And Ned, I think you've covered some some recent changes, right? Are we saw finally seeing a change to how much regionals pay? We're seeing some changes. So Commute Air, they are a United subsidiary, Fly United Express. Their pilots ratified a new contract that gives pilots, I believe, a 25% raise on their, their hourly rate and first officers a 31% raise. Uh, I can check those numbers, but it's sizable. The thing is, is I'm unfortunately, it's, it's not you know, digging through. I, I don't have direct comparison to what the rates are at other carriers, but everyone would agree that everyone has, has told me and everyone I talked to is, is the low wages at these regional airlines are you know one of the one of the barriers to entry because it costs a lot to become a pilot mm -hmm. I want to point out United Aviate Academy United Airlines new pilot Academy is uh, even though they are covering the cost of one of one pilot certification the rest of training still costs seventy one thousand oh. dollars for someone to do not to mention you know it, it takes several years. There's cost of living. That's just $71,000. Well, you're not earning a paycheck unless you have a second job. So That's a chunk of change. It's a good chunk of change. And then you're entering an industry where you're going to be earning, what, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year at best when you start out. And I've heard worse, but hopefully I've, with yeah. some, of, <laughs> some of these incentives. I spoke to uh, a pilot who's actually in the process of getting his hours up for 
for uh, to, to get a job with a regional recently. And, you know, he was telling me that, you know, he is lucky because he's able to keep his day job while he's getting his hours up. And but he really sees how he's, it'd be really hard for anyone who doesn't have a day job that, you know, he can work remotely <laughs> between flights to, to do that. So it's it's kind of sad when we rely so much on on these pilots to, to power the you know, transportation in the U.S. system and globally, and it's so hard to, to, for people to get in. Yeah, you know, I actually asked this question. I spoke to Hunter K., the new CFO of Avello, Avilo, Avello. If, please correct my pronunciation if you if you if you know exactly how to say it. Mutskip.com. Anyway, um, you know, uh, Hunter was a, an analyst at uh, at various investment banks for for a long time, and made the jump to be CFO. And I asked him point blank, all right, so you know, you're going after the same pot of pilots as everyone and they're not enough. So how how are you how are you how is Avella going to attract pilots? And he said, just frankly, we pay more. Now he wouldn't give me any clarity on what that pay is. So for anyone who's looking to apply, I have no idea. Don't ask me. But you know, he said that's that's the way you address a pilot shortage and, and attracting talent. You pay more. So and that's going to come right back down to the bottom line for a lot of these airlines. And remember, they're also dealing with rise, rapidly rising oil prices from the uh-huh. crisis in in Russia and Ukraine to you know higher pilot costs. You know, one of the and this is one of the things that Wall Street analysts keep focusing on are the jump in unit costs in 2022. You're really focusing on that because they're going up a lot, even without fuel included. So it's uh, it's yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, we didn't even get into fuel. Um... But now it's over $100 a barrel for the first time since 2014. So I don't know how airlines with their plans for a hot vac summer, how how these things, how this is going to play out. Canceling routes. Um, I, I've got to see that capa- some capacity is going to come out of the system where fares just will not be as low as they as people who haven't traveled for two years were expecting. I almost uh, can guarantee you that fares are going to be higher this summer than they have been the last few summers. You know, and the one thing that makes me sad is when we see all the consumer price inflation index increases their year over year without taking into account that, I mean, really, we need to base it on 2019 because that's the last year of sort of regular run rate airfares. So um, but that's another that's another argument altogether. All right. With that, Madhu, we're going to take it out. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. You know, again, our hearts and minds go out to everyone in the Ukraine and hope everyone can stay safe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll speak to you next week. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Should you have comments or questions, drop editor Madhu Unikrishnan a note at mu at skiff.com. Of course, Check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week.